Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Well, we've made it to the end of June, at least in terms of the Three Martini Lunch. A few hours left in the month, of course. But uh, Jim, good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives as usual. And it's also the final day of the very eventful session of the U.S. Supreme Court. So we'll start there and then uh, talk about how Democrats are trying to respond to what's happened at the Supreme Court this month. And that is certainly not a good martini. But let's uh, talk about what we got today, at least for one important case in our good martini. USA Today uh, with the story, the Supreme Court on Thursday ruled against an environmental protection agency effort to regulate power plant emissions, dealing a blow to the Biden administration in one of the most significant climate cases decided by the high court in more than a decade. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the opinion for a 6-3 to three majority. The court's three liberal justices dissented. At the center of the case was a question about whether the EPA had authority to curb carbon emissions from power plants. Simmering just below the surface was a deeper debate over how much authority all federal agencies have to issue regulations absent explicit authorization from Congress, an issue with far-reaching implications. So here's part of what Roberts wrote for the majority. Capping carbon dioxide emissions at a level that will force a nationwide transition away from the use of coal to generate electricity may be a sensible solution to the crisis of the day. But it is not plausible that Congress gave EPA the authority to adopt on its own such a regulatory scheme. A decision of such magnitude and consequence rests with Congress itself or an agency acting pursuant to a clear delegation from that representative body. Writing in the dissent, Justice Elena Kagan, a uh, very different take here. She says the stakes here are high, yet the court today prevents congressionally authorized agency action to curb power plants' carbon dioxide emissions. The court appoints itself instead of Congress or the expert agency, the decision maker on climate policy. Really? I cannot think of many things more frightening. Oh, but she gets even more insulting of Congress as the dissent continues, Jim. Listen to this. First, members of Congress often don't know enough and know they don't know enough to regulate sensibly on an issue. Further down, second and relatedly, members of Congress often can't know enough and again know they can't to keep regulatory schemes working across time. So... <laughs> Forget what the Constitution says in terms of uh, who gets to set laws in this country. Uh, Jim, for those of us uh, who remember Obamacare uh, and, and other huge legislation, there's just a lot of vague phrases in there saying the Department of Health and Human Services you know, can make policies to deal with this over time. And Congress has apparently done the same with the EPA and a lot of other agencies. But this is great news because these regulatory agencies just take more and more and more power, making people's lives miserable when Congress has given them no explicit right to do so. This is one of those moments, Greg, where I, you know, as much as I vehemently disagree with Sonia Sotomayor, I'm glad she's on the court. And, you know, you think about it, Barack Obama nominated both Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor to the court. Uh, if I remember, the confirmation vote for both of them was roughly about the same. But if you talk to people who are in kind of the conservative legal community, they speak with, of Elena Kagan with a surprising amount of respect. They, they definitely think that she is a, you know, they don't agree with her. They don't agree with her decisions, but they say when you read her opinions, you, you read her legal reasoning, you look at what the examples she cites, they, you know, she makes a, the, the liberal side of the argument about as compellingly and, and uh, persuasively as someone possibly can. 
And you don't hear conservative legal scholars and, and you know, top right of center lawyers, they don't talk about Sonia Sotomayor the same way. And some of it is, is that, you know, if, that what she says is just blatantly against the Constitution. But the other thing is that sometimes she, like, she, she bluntly kind of expresses the id of progressivism. Um, and, you know, the, the at kind of at the core of this issue is how much authority do federal agencies have when Congress has not explicitly said, yes, you are authorized to do this, to regulate this, to make these changes. Federal agencies are not little mini Congresses. They don't get to basically say, well, we have regulatory, we're allowed to issue regulations. That's almost like lawmaking authority. So basically we can decide what the laws ought to be. Um, and the characterization of the EPA as you know the decision maker on climate policy. Ooh, I really don't know that, that sort of uh, wording should make everybody's you know hair in the back of their neck stand up. Because that's basically saying that no, no, this executive branch agency ultimately is the, the, the final res, residual of power, that ultimately they get to decide and Congress, your job isn't to be there. And then we see why Sonia Sotomayor feels this way in that she basically thinks that Congress is too ignorant to appropriately regulate these issues. She's basically saying, look, I'm deciding this way in the minority because I'm trying to save the American people from the danger of their own elected representatives. I'm trying to be, a, there's, there's, they can't be trusted. And ultimately, what she's saying is that the, the elect, American electorate cannot be trusted to elect people who will enact the right policies. We need to seize the decision-making power away from the people and away from their representatives and put it into the hands of unelected EPA officials. It's really kind of mind-boggling how blunt she is about this. And so, you know, my, you know, when Sotomayor was confirmed, you kind of heard a little bit of these murmurs amongst conservatives. She's never going to be very persuasive. She's not. You, know, you want the opposition to be represented by the least persuasive voice uh, that is out there. And I think in decision after decision, Sotomayor has demonstrated she is the one who tends to argue like a Daily Coast comment section uh, user and, you know, most overtly political. Um, I mean, some people may you know, make it directed. She may be trying to, uh, to uh, recast herself in the role of RBG uh, to be the you know Supreme Court justice who is also a cultural figure and utterly beloved by the progressive left. But I don't think she's particularly you know uh, persuasive in that. And I think she certainly isn't, you know, it certainly doesn't look like she managed to persuade Roberts or Kavanaugh uh, or any of the other justices on this one. No, not at all. And you're absolutely right. When you denigrate Congress, you're denigrating the people that put them there, which is exactly how the framers wanted uh, our, our system to work. Uh, but Jim, you know, we have certainly talked about some folks who are kind of dim bulbs up on, on Capitol Hill. And sometimes they rise to be president and vice president, for example. Um, but what in the last year and a half has uh, given you any confidence that people in the executive or administrative part of government are competent either? I mean, it's just been one train wreck after the other. So the idea that, oh, the all-knowing wise people in the bureaucracies know exactly what to do, and it just happens yeah. to be more and more government power, uh, is just a total canard, too. Greg, we should probably pause to note that the Supreme Court Justice has said that there are, what, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of children on respirators because of COVID-19. <laughs> yes. uh, she's arguing Congress doesn't know enough to, you know, enact appropriate regulations and to decide on these issues. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Wow. Uh, a couple other quick follow-ups on this point. Uh, first of all, Joe Biden, who we'll talk about again in the second martini, uh, did hold a press conference at the end of his summit in Spain. 
And he had this to say uh, about the Supreme Court. This was more about the abortion decision. But, uh, Jim, listen to this language coming from Biden. The one thing that has been destabilizing is the outrageous behavior of the Supreme Court of the United States on overruling not only Roe v. Wade, but essentially challenging the right to privacy. We've been a leader in the world in terms of personal rights and privacy rights. And it is a mistake, in my view, for the Supreme Court to do what it did. Jim, if Donald Trump had called the uh, Supreme Court destabilizing or some other conservative, you think that would just kind of uh, gloss over there? I mean, that's uh, that's uh, that's an assault on the uh, separation of powers and the, uh, the framework of our government, is it not? You know, one, are, are, are we ending judicial supremacy? Is that the, is that the rule? <laughs> we just don't believe that they get the final say anymore. Uh, I'm also reminded of Barack Obama calling out the justices and Samuel Alito uh, during the State of the Union with them in the audience and stuff like that. Remember, we're all institutionalists until the institution does something we don't like. Yes. And then all of a sudden we just transform into the, you know, uh, the angry mob with pitchforks and, and torches, apparently. Um, look, on the one hand, I'm not surprised Biden is doing this, but I think there's a particular fr- extraordinarily frustrating irony to hear this kind of argument at the same time when you know, you know questioning the you know, questioning the election results is tearing down american democracy okay well what do you think when you start you know biden says this and aoc and elizabeth warren run around arguing that the court is not legitimate i mean again earlier in the week we talked about the difference between legitimacy and popularity and you know biden has apparently is tempted to blur those lines as much as anybody else And one other note, Jim, exactly as we're speaking here, it is the official retirement of Justice Stephen Breyer, noon Thursday, uh, June 30th, uh, after 28 years on the bench. He was, of course, nominated by uh, President Clinton in 1994. Uh, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson is being sworn in as we speak and is the new associate justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, This change, while it's you know, uh, a liberal justice for a liberal justice reminds me a little bit of a conversation I had with, I think Kevin Williamson was in for you that day back in uh, 2013. And I was uh, groaning about some of the latest nanny state things that Michael Bloomberg was doing. And uh, Williamson said, well, yeah, all of that's true. But when we get a new mayor of New York City, uh, it's going to be infinitely worse. And that, of course, turned out to be Bill de Blasio, and he was absolutely right. So uh, while we disagreed with Stephen Breyer the vast majority of the time, I, I, I expect Katanji Brown-Jackson to be even more lockstep uh, with the liberal wing of the court than he was. Closer to Sotomayor than Kagan, to think of the comparison I was making earlier in this podcast. The new court, of course, will uh, take up cases in earnest in uh, October. Also, big decisions today on Title 42, giving Biden the right to kill that policy. And also, the court will not take up the uh, appeal of healthcare workers in New York challenging the vaccine mandate. So, a couple other major decisions there today. Uh, Jim, let's talk about uh, something else that's great, though, and that is the quality of your X chair. Look, many of us spend more time every day in our office chair than in our cars or beds. And that's why it's so important to invest in the right chair to spend those hours with the right level of support and comfort to get the most productivity out of your day. The X chair has made my time at my desk not only more productive, it's honestly my favorite place to sit for any reason. Not only does the X chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar, or DVL, offer the ultimate customized support, but my X chair can even give me a massage or heat up or cool down. And now, thanks to X-Chair's new FS360 armrests, I can even adjust my armrests to the perfect position. All of these unique X-Chair features help the hours at my desk fly by in complete comfort. That's why I love my X-Chair. 
X-chair prices will increase on July 11th, and you know, inflation's happening everywhere. But you still have time to get an X-chair at current prices, so shop now and beat the price increase. Go to xchairmartini.com now. That's the letter X chair, M-A-R-T-I-N-I.com, or call one 844 x chair X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 per month. XChairMartini.com. All right, Jim, on to our bad martini now. And uh, the left is now trying to find a way to circumvent uh, the U.S. Supreme Court. And one of the ways they could do that, of course, is through legislation passed by Congress. They've talked about codifying uh, Roe v. Wade. Uh, the House, I think, has already done that. Uh, the Senate, of course, got blocked by a filibuster and it didn't even get to 50 votes. So it's not really like the filibuster was in effect there. It just failed. But uh, the left is still trying to get this codified. And so as a result, uh, they want to have limited lifting of the filibuster. We're not going to kill the filibuster in its entirety, just on the really, really important stuff. And Joe Biden is right on board, as he explained today in Madrid. I believe we have to codify Roe v. Wade in the law. And the way to do that is to make sure the Congress votes to do that. And if the filibuster gets in the way, it's like voting rights. It should be we provide an exception for this, the except the require an exception to the filibuster for this action to deal with the Supreme Court decision. And so, Jim, uh, you have written about this: the idea that oh no no we're not going to get rid of the filibuster except when it really matters. Uh, another really dumb idea coming from the left that's desperate to uh, somehow gain the upper hand after last week's decision. Folks, what I'm trying to say here is, is that we should only, you know, the filibuster, it, it's got to be there unless it's a budget bill or I really just want to see the bill passed. Uh, that, those are the exceptions that he wants to carve out there. And what's what I wrote about is the degree to which so many of our political leaders, I'd say more Democrats, but, you know, you probably can find Republican you know, examples of this, this phenomenon amongst Republicans. Um, of just not seeing what struck me as the natural and extremely foreseeable consequences of their decisions. When the Democrats had the majority in the Senate and they were frustrated by Republicans filibustering Obama's judicial nominees, they said, well, you know what? We're going to eliminate the filibuster for lower court judicial nominees, but we'll keep it in place for Supreme Court judicial nominees because we don't really need it for that because there just weren't enough Republicans who were willing to filibuster the likes of Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor. Uh, well, a couple of years later go by and Republicans want to get Gorsuch on the court and Democrats threaten a filibuster and Senate Republicans are like, OK, we're getting rid of the filibuster for Supreme Court nominations. And Democrat, a lot of Senate Democrats are like, why? You can't do that. Well, you can only do that for lower court judicial nominees because we really wanted our judges to get through. But now we really don't want your judges to get through. That's that's the way it's got to be. And McConnell's like, you know, nope, sorry. Now you're going to say, well, look, we're only going to, we're going to get rid of the filibuster, but only for, for voting rights legislation or only for abortion legislation, only for the stuff that we really think is important. But we're going to keep it in place for the rest of them. Ergo, if you know someday we lose control of the Senate, you guys will keep it in place and we'll still be able to block the legislation that you consider really important. Senate Republicans are going to say no. One of two things will happen. Either Senate Republicans will eliminate the filibuster for any issue they deem sufficiently important. Oh, by the way, reversing that abortion legislation will be one of those things they deem really important. Uh, but my guess is, is that if, you know, uh, next year, if if Democrats remove the filibuster for certain topics, when Republicans step into power, they'll eliminate the filibuster for all of it. You'll only need 50 or 51 votes to 
uh, pass legislation, depending on which party controls the White House, and the legislation, the Senate will just turn into another version of the of the House. Majority rules. It will not be as you know, famously, the founding fathers described the cooling saucer for the tea. It will not be a more deliberative body. It'll be another thing of up. Oh, yeah, you got a majority, you can get it passed. That's that's the way it is. Yeah, I love the filibuster. I mean, even though you don't get stuff done, it stops a lot of horrible stuff from getting through. But the inconsistency and the hypocrisy is just uh, absolutely staggering here. I shouldn't be staggered it's anymore. A, it's a trade-off. <laughs> I can remember during the uh, Trump years when, when Republicans had the majority in the Senate and they were frustrated by the Democratic filibuster. Certain senators, including Ted Cruz, even Charles Krauthammer was looking at it and saying, uh, you know, maybe at some point Republicans are going to have to get rid of this because, you know, you know, the Democrats are going to do it. The great irony, of course, is that Republicans did not eliminate the filibuster uh, for legislation while they had control of the chamber. <clears throat> now, today, you hear Democrats saying, well, if Republicans ever get we should get rid of it, because if we don't, the Republicans will do it the moment they're back in power. Now, the great irony is they didn't for the entire, you know, for the <laughs> yes. entirety of the time they had control of the Senate. And for all of the Republicans who are saying, well, we should get rid you know, of we should get rid of it. Up until now, the Democrats have not. Now, that may well change, but here's the, the really just the spectacular irony of it. Let's just pretend, pretend you're a Democrat, listeners. Some of you may already be Democrats, but most of you, this is just going to be a thought exercise. If you're a Democrat and you're like, you know, we're getting rid of the filibuster. It's just too much of a pain. We don't want 40 to 41 Republicans being able to block what we want to get done. Okay. You'd rather do it like in January of 2021. Right. You'd rather do it at the beginning of your your uh, session. And that way you can pass whatever you want and get it all to the president's desk. He can sign it into law and you can get a heck of a lot passed. And it really won't matter that much that the Senate is split 50-50. Like, that's the other great irony is they want to get rid of the filibuster when they are so tight they need Vice President Harris to break the ties. And oh, by the way, Joe Manchin still said he's not going to go along with this. So I don't think they have enough votes to remove the filibuster. But So this entire debate may be theoretical. But let's go. But the irony is like the last thing you'd want to do is eliminate the filibuster right before a midterm election when Republicans <laughs> could win control of the chamber. Because at that point, you've just handed them like pretty much complete control of the Senate, you know, and, you know, and you've eliminated the tool that you were going to need in the minority. The, the filibuster was always this trade off. It was always this thing of like, look, it was an absolute bane in the tokus when you were the majority and it was a pain and you had to really try to get, you know, five or six or seven of the members of the other party to get out to sign on. And it was, ah, it was really, really, you know, ah, it's, you know, but once you were the minority, like, okay, this is great. This, this, you know, this way we can stop the worst ideas of the opposition, you know, and the, the ideas that the, 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 it is a triumph of short-sightedness. It is a triumph of inability to see the consequences of actions that we just keep seeing in Washington over and over again. Yeah, very well said. Uh, yeah, politicians often act like two or three-year-old children. They know what they want right now and don't think at all about what could be coming down the road. But I, I saw somewhere, I don't know where to attribute it, but I saw it earlier this week, that in addition to Manchin and Cinema, who to my knowledge have not budged at all, regardless of the issue on the filibuster, and again, the issue itself failed in the Senate not that long ago, um, there were allegedly five other Democrats who just weren't willing to go on the record, but would actually be opposed to it. Now, whether they would do that when the chips are down, who knows? But uh, allegedly, there's a few more Democrats who think it's at least a terrible idea. Whether they've got the courage to say so or vote so uh, might remain to be seen, but we'll see about that. But I think Mark Kelly's got to see the, last, the latest polling to see what his position is. <laughs> yes. 
Profiles encourage, man. Profiles encourage. All right. Uh, speaking of uh, 2024, also just around the corner, we are brought to you in part today once again by the Presidential Election Project. Imagine a scenario in 2024 that is similar to 2020. with a lot of questions about irregularities in votes and even debates and recounts of votes in key states. But this time, it's not Mike Pence, but Vice President Kamala Harris, who's being urged to interpret her role in the process as one where she has the right to determine which electoral votes count. And why? Because the Electoral Count Act isn't specific enough. The Presidential Election Project wants to see this change. Go to presidentialelectionproject.com now. Sign up to get updates and learn more about this very important procedural ceremony and what steps Congress is taking to reform and clarify our electoral process. The project once again urges you to visit presidentialelectionproject.com and sign up to get updates so that by 2024 there is no question that Vice President Harris will not have the power to overturn those results. Once again, presidentialelectionproject.com. All right, Jim, speaking of 2024 and Kamala Harris, uh, let's talk about the plans of the president and vice president for 2024. Uh, Earlier this week in an interview with CNN, uh, Vice President Harris seemed to be very clear. Uh, Absolutely. Joe Biden's running again, and I'm going to be on the ticket, she says. Here's how it went. Joe Biden is running for re-election, and I will be his ticket mate. Full stop. Full stop. That's it. That's it. Uh, except for now we're inching away from that. This is uh, from just yesterday uh, via the pool following Vice President Harris. The White House said Kamala Harris wanted to clarify comments she made on CNN a few days ago when asked if Biden was definitely running in 2024. And now Harris replied, quote, the president intends to run. And if he does, I will be his ticket mate. We will run together. So uh, Jim uh, intends is a lot different than full stop. Uh, those who have watched Joe Biden certainly wonder whether you know he's going to have uh, what it takes to get through the next year and a half, much less uh, four years beyond that. His numbers are not looking great anyway, so even if he does run, there's a decent chance he wouldn't get reelected. But uh, what do you make of uh, Harris being absolutely certain and then yeah, being a little more wishy-washy on the language? Well, yeah, when I first saw this yesterday afternoon, I was like, wow. I wonder what made her go like of all the things you could correct that she has said that seemed like the a really odd selection now reportedly uh you know a lot of reports said that the follow-up statement was of, to avoid using a trigger word that would set off requirements for biden to establish a formal campaign with the federal elections commission to begin fundraising i gotta be honest though that's i don't know how plausible i find that because the assumption of every president incumbent president in the first term is that they're running for re-election. It's very rare that they don't. In fact, I believe it was the cinematic classic Clear and Present Danger that said that uh, when a, uh, what is the first, what does every first term president want? A second term? It's a blanket assumption. Uh, it's probably you know, not official until they make the official announcement, but like you very rarely see someone. Now, obviously this is a much older president than we're used to seeing. His approval rating is currently in the mid to upper thirties. Uh, the midterm elections look like they're going to be terrible. A lot of people actually wouldn't be surprised if Joe Biden chose not to run. Uh, but he, you know, you know, she's put the question is put to her and she's, you know, we're going to say, all right, you know, we're running. It's possible to read too much into this, but I do wonder how, considering how much drama we've seen around the vice president's office, <coughs> tensions that I, I suspect go all the way back to that first debate 
where Kamala Harris, you know, just went right out there and went right at Joe Biden and called him a racist over the school bus policy back in the 1970s. You know, there are certain Biden friends and allies who have never forgiven Kamala Harris. There are probably some Kamala Harris fans and, and staffers and allies who basically think she's being completely misused and or snubbed and or shoved aside by the Biden crew. The, by the way, this is actually kind of normal for presidents and vice presidents to have a little bit of, a, of tension. Um, the vice president is always trying to like, you know, get ready to step into the spotlight, thinking further down the road about when they're trying to run for president. And the president is much more focused on the here and now and sees the vice president. Look, your job is to support me. And sometimes that often means, you know, doing the dirty work, doing the jobs that, you know, that I don't want to do as president because it would hurt my standing and my public image. You know, I'm sure Joe Biden feels like uh, he shoveled a lot of you know what for Barack Obama because he felt that was part of the job. I wonder if he feels like Kamala Harris is giving him the same kind of loyalty and, uh, you know, willingness to sublimate uh, her preferences and desires and such. So I don't know how this is. I, I don't know whether this statement reflects some of that tension, but we are, you know, the reason our politics feel so um, unexpectedly suspenseful in June 2022 is that we have a president who's probably too darn old for the job and who would be closer to 90 than to 80 at the end of his second term. And we have a vice president who ordinarily would be the heir apparent, but who has approval ratings that are already like, you know, like anywhere from five to 10 points below Joe Biden's already bad approval ratings. Um, there's obviously a whole bunch of Democrats out there who are not eager to see Biden run again in 2024 and who really aren't all that eager to run in 2024 with Kamala Harris as top of the ticket. So. You know, it's dramatic moments here, and these sorts of things are going to blow up pretty big. It's very curious she made this. Yeah, technically it's an FEC explanation, but I have a really tough time believing the FEC would suddenly then say, aha, the president is, you know, you have to, you know, form a formal committee or something or some sort of, you know, uh, Federal Elections Commission, you know, jumping on them, like coming down on them like a ton of bricks, just because in an in a interview she said, the pre you know, uh, Biden is running and I'll be his ticket mate. Kind of tough to believe, but, you know. Maybe the lawyers got involved. It's obvious from all the chatter in Washington that uh, a lot of Democrats are ready to be done with Joe Biden, and they can probably see Harris's approval ratings, like you mentioned. But like we talked about earlier when we were musing on whether Hillary was trying to reemerge, who do they have? <laughs> I mean, it's just, uh, it's just a terrible bench. As luck would have it, my colleague Michael Brennan Doherty um, wrote about uh, one of our regular favorites here on the podcast, California Governor Gavin Newsom. Because uh, he, Gavin Newsom keeps doing things that sound like he wants to run for president. Um, he did this whole social media video where he went on to Trump's Truth Social and started arguing with people. And I mean, I look at that and I'm like, okay, this is a man who's allegedly running one of the biggest states in the union, but he's got too much time on his hands if he's going online and you know getting like it's like arguing with somebody in the comments section. But clearly, to a lot of progressives across the country, going in there and fighting with the Trump crowd that that you know that really inspires people. Uh, J.B. Pritzker uh, is running a ad, is going, is traveling to New Hampshire. Uh, Phil Murphy has a whole, you know, last seen killing lots of New Jerseyans because of his COVID policies. Um, he, you know, apparently has a super PAC that's got a bunch of millions of dollars and stuff like that. If you are a Democratic governor with a decent fu uh, fundraising base, you are probably hanging around and just waiting for opportunity. Maybe, maybe nothing happens. Maybe the Democratic ticket in 2024 is Biden-Harris. Or 
maybe you know biden gets too old and you know has a health issue god forbid something like that maybe harris looks at her numbers and says this is not going to work for me i'm not going to do it and all of a sudden the democratic party needs a nominee and there you are so it's kind of like hanging around waiting for opportunity to arrive and i think that that's what a bunch of these governors are doing um i don't and it's an interesting mbd is you know no fan of gavin newsom but he looks at he says look you know gobs of money he's younger you know he, he he's more charismatic than that he'd be a tougher opponent than either biden or harris and uh, it's worth reading even though i'm not sure i'm 100 convinced by it oh my gosh he's justin trudeau with a california tan i mean come on yeah a child of privilege, you know, barely ever worked a day in his life. But, uh, yeah. But then again, you know, California Democrats like him. <laughs> well, I think, it, I think he could win right? California. I mean, you know, he, so we'll see. I've heard a little bit of chatter about Jared Polis if he does well this year, Governor of Colorado. And I think the ultimate Democratic dream is Michelle Obama, but I truly believe she doesn't want to do it. And the only way she would even consider it is truly there's no other option, which which we might be getting close to. Uh, I don't know. But uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, becoming president would require her to take a sabbatical from being Michelle Obama. <laughs> Who wants to do and, that? And I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of joking about that. But like, I kind of figure if you're Michelle Obama, you've got a really good life right now. Right? You do what you want to do. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do. You feel like giving a speech, you give a speech. You want to be active in a cause. You're a private citizen now. You're not expected to weigh in on every issue that comes down the pike. If you feel like speaking up on abortion or something, you do that. Once you enter as a candidate, you have to be involved in all kinds of decisions, whether you were interested in them or not, whether they're thorny and complicated. You know, like, how many people would want that? Particularly when you've already lived in the White House for eight years. You know what it's like. You're not consumed with a burning ambition to prove you can be president or something like that. Yeah, what first lady would have that ambition? Oh, (laughs) that one. That one. Uh, Jim, on that note, we'll end it for today. Have a great Thursday, and we'll talk again tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, Do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch if you don't already, and tell a friend about us as well. Thank you so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. They're a big help to us. Also, get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Thursday, and please join us again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Arizona Republican Senate candidate Jim Lehman joins me to explain how to solve the nation's energy and water crisis. I'm Sarah Carter on the latest Sarah Carter Show. I'll also discuss the horrific story of more than 50 migrants found dead in Texas and my travel nightmare from earlier this week. And I explain why President Biden deserves the blame for both. Join me. Follow the Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.